Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Dina Lawson describes her artwork as a reflection of everyday life. An exhibition of photographs by Lawson is on view now in Atlanta at the High Museum. Later this hour, curator Maria Kelly speaks with City Lights producer Summer Evans about how Lawson's work examines and challenges historical representations of black people and black life. Plus, the internationally renowned Irish tenor Emmett Cahill returns with joy to the world, a holiday concert at Symphony Hall. First... Every holiday season, storytellers revive a Christmas carol, the best-loved work of the great Victorian novelist Charles Dickens. The annual production at Dad's Garage Theater carefully sets the stage for the cold-hearted Ebenezer Scrooge's redemption and then entirely derails it. Invasion Christmas Carol is a phenomenally popular tradition at Dad's Garage, where bizarre, unthinkable characters invade the famous tale, surprising even the actors on stage. Margaret Rushdie directs this year's Invasion Christmas Carol and joins me now via Zoom along with Karen Cassidy, who plays Ebenezer Scrooge. Welcome to City Lights. Hey, thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. Does anyone know how many years Invasion Christmas Carol has been an annual tradition at that? Um, It started in 2008. That was the first time Invasion Christmas Carol happened. And then there were a couple of years where we didn't do it. We tried an Invasion It's a Wonderful Life at one point. And (laughs) I think this is our 13th one since 2008. And I think it started before that with Invasion Our Town, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, 
Okay, so you've been invaded many times. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We've got it down to a little bit of a science now. <laughs> how much we can mess everything up. <laughs> well, that was my next question. <laughs> Will you tell us just how it works? Yeah, uh, starting uh, just a little bit before Halloween, the week before Halloween, we went into rehearsals. Karen and the rest of the cast, we have a stellar cast this year. We go into rehearsals just rehearsing a traditional theatrical version of A Christmas Carol. And that's what we're doing up until about a week before we open. And we have it down. There's sets, there's costumes, there's lighting design, we do production meetings, we learn our lines, we try to get it as perfect as possible. And then every night for the performance, an improviser invades as a character that the cast has no idea who it's going to be. And that improviser's job is to try to derail the show as much as possible. Okay, so this makes me think there must be a large, invisible side of this production. Who's in charge of coming up with the invader characters? A lot of times it's the improvisers come in with ideas of their own and they'll, you know, pass it by the director. But I don't know, Magid might have ideas for the improvisers as well. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's because it's our Christmas tradition. We, as an artistic community, spend a lot of time just thinking about it, spending time just talking about the show. Oh, you know what would be great for next year is if this happened. And it's sort of an ongoing process. Structurally, how it works is I open up the casting to any of the improvisers at Dad's Garage. And first we ask them what they want to be. And then the people that have really strong ideas usually get slotted in. And then we try to find some other surprise things in there as well. But to my understanding, the actors on stage are surprised by the invaders. Yeah, and we go to great lengths to make sure they are surprised. In fact, the uh, invaders are locked away in a separate dressing room from Ooh. the rest of the cast. Then once the invader comes out to give an opening speech for the show, all of the cast is locked up backstage. And there's a sort <laughs> of uh, invader cast shuffle that we do. So the cast doesn't see the invader until the moment they step out on stage. Oh, wow. Yeah, so we, we're just as surprised as the audience. We see them for the first time with them. Which, of course, allows for your art as improvisers because improvisers often will ask the audience for an idea and then expand upon it, and the troupe goes into the yes and collaborative mode. But when you are confronted with a surprise invader, is it more challenging because you still have to adhere to the script of the Dickens story? I find it more challenging, yes, because you have to, what you just said, stick in the confines of the show i mean there's parts where you can play around with it but there's definitely parts that we have to keep like scrooge getting redeemed or you know tiny tim that whole moment and it's 
you have to keep those in there while working in what the improviser is trying to um, relay to the story. So it can definitely be challenging. Oh, wow. A lot of moving parts, mm-hmm. literally parts. <laughs> Magid, you performed in last year's show. Who was the disrupting invader on your watch? So there's a couple of ways to answer that. Uh, we have disruptive characters, and then we also have disruptive improvisers. So ah. <laughs> a surprisingly disruptive one last year was Paul Bunyan, who would seem like <laughs> a normal, fun folklore character to get involved with. But just the improviser that was playing him has a disruptive, mischievous personality. It ended up being one of the crazier shows that we got into. Oh my goodness. So did the improvisers manage to come up with a good way to incorporate Paul Bunyan into this story? Yeah, it's sort of, to my sensibility, the way the show, when it works best, is when we take the world of the invader and wrap that into the redemption arc of Scrooge. And we got there in that show. It it turned out that Paul Bunyan was Scrooge's boss that wanted to fire him from his job. Oh. We ended up reconciling at the end, and it went well. I'm glad to hear. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with director Magid Rushdie and actor Karen Cassidy about Invasion Christmas Carol at Dad's Garage. Karen, this year you are playing the role of Scrooge. You released a hilarious video on TikTok announcing the upcoming role. Would you tell us about the bit you did in the video? Yes. I portray a teacher on social media that just started during the pandemic and people seem to enjoy it. So I did my teacher character acting like she had to pull in a last minute sub and there was no one left. So Ebenezer Scrooge had to substitute the class. And (laughs) of course it started pretty bad and he's very mean. And we, Maggot and I were talking about it. There were a lot of people asking if there was going to be a part two. And I'm wondering, I now need to continue the story to see how he handles the class. Ooh, mm-hmm. stay tuned. <laughs> well, it's clear that you are going to be a fabulous Scrooge, but one wonders how you, so endearing and vivacious, get into the character of that sour and cantankerous Ebenezer. <laughs> it's funny because I was honored that Maggot asked me to be Scrooge because I know in the past I haven't necessarily been put in that role because of not having that persona, not showing that very much on stage, a, a mean part or, you know, getting to that type personality. So, and I just tell myself, it is an actor. I'm an actor. I can do this. I'm just acting in the moment. And so I just play complete opposite of who I am at the core. And I just try my best to commit to it and own it. And it's very, very fun. It doesn't mean after we do the show that I go up to people and say, you know, I would never do that, right? I'm really, really (laughs) (laughs) 
Megan, you played Scrooge last year. How did you bring your unique inner Scrooge to the surface? I think the same thing that Karen was saying, I think in theater, in acting, you can always find something in with the character. And what's cool about this show is that every year we get to sort of display a different person being Scrooge and a different kind of Scrooge and how we get to that point. For me, Scrooge came from a lot of pain and insecurity. And I think that was easy as an actor to connect with. And it's just the way that Scrooge lashes out may be different than the way that I deal with being insecure. But I, I go to comedy and he goes to meanness. And But it was still the same thing. I think any role, you got to find the humanity in it. And I think with Scrooge specifically, finding the interesting ways that you can really display your power and displeasure with people around you is a really fun challenge. Hmm. Now, this is for both of you. I'm wondering about some of the crazy characters who have invaded Dad's Christmas Carol story. Do any remain unforgettable for either of you? I remember one of my first years, I think watching it, I don't even know if I was in it. I might have been in it, but a hot dog invaded. (laughs) <laughs> just a hot dog it was Kevin Galise and he was just like I'm a hot dog and we yeah. had to make that work <laughs> I think they ended up eating the hot dog at the Cratchit oh, dinner just... at the end it was so oh, sort my... of a... we have a little bit of eating oh, Raul in that invasion <laughs> yeah. yeah that's definitely one of my more memorable ones and and beyond Paul Bunyan Maggot oh Last year, we had some that just, I think being Scrooge and watching them come out on stage, because Scrooge and Bob Cratchit are at the are in the opening scene. And I've got to play both of those characters. But last year, we had 11 improvisers invade as the Harlem Globetrotters. Oh, I wish <laughs> I had been there. And every scene, they just added one or two more improvisers so the first scene it was three Harlem Globetrotters and then the next scene they came in it was five and in my head I was like okay five makes sense that's the number of people on a basketball team right and then it was seven and then eight and then 11 it's every time they came on they just added one or two more people and it it was complete chaos in the best way possible and to me I actually used to play a lot of basketball in high school so no one but at the end of the show, when I actually got to, as Scrooge, to hold the basketball, I did some basketball tricks, and it was a serendipitous moment that no one was expecting. Oh, oh, I hope it was videotaped. We did get that on tape, oh, yeah. Good. I bounced the ball off my knee and dribbled <gasps> it between my legs. It was, it was a fun time, for sure. Were you whistling Sweet Georgia Brown? <laughs> oh, no, I missed that. I, I missed that offer. But... Still, it sounds like quite a feat to pull off. You mentioned Cratchit. Dickens' Christmas Carol is filled with other memorable characters, Tiny Tim, the three ghosts of Christmas. What other portrayal should we look forward to seeing in this production? The 
I tried going in to direct the show as close to faithfully as possible. One of the things that there's a slight change in the show this year in which we have the same person playing Belle, Scrooge's ex-fiance, is also playing Ghost of Christmas Future. And to me, I think that kind of, I hope that sends the message that everything in Scrooge's life has been around him this whole time. And the idea that his redemption was as easy as just apologizing and making it better at any point in the process. Mm. You mentioned the education department and that you've been director, Magid. Actually, I had the pleasure of speaking with your daughter, who was part of the education department. Is she still? That's right. She is very involved with Dad's Garage at 11 years old. She and I have been doing improv together since she was five. Uh, we have a duo called Funny Bunny, in which we tell um, the story of two animal best friends, and she gets involved with the theater. And We have our new kids show coming up, uh, Adventure Playhouse, where it's going to be a more experiential kids show for as kids walk in, they're going to be inside of an adventure playhouse. And I believe Karen's a part of that as well. Oh, how cool. Yes. Are you, are you too, Maggie? That's yeah. exciting. Yay. So clearly the company has this ongoing commitment to improv workshops and camps for all ages. I was wondering if Invasion Christmas Carol in any way serves as a model for teaching improv to kids. Uh, absolutely. I think there's a lot of kids that we have a number of uh, family-friendly matinees in this year's run of the show. And it's one of those where I think, and I'm a little biased, but I think Invasion Christmas Carol is just one of the most magical things to happen. And it helps pull people in with the story that everyone understands. And kids know what Christmas Carol is. They've seen it. We have some great renditions of it out there with Muppet Christmas Carol and Mickey Mouse Christmas Carol. And when it gets messed up, even if you're a kid, it just brings so much joy to everyone involved, I think. Director Magid Brushti and actor Karen Cassidy. Invasion Christmas Carol is on stage at Dad's Garage from December 2nd through 30th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll hear about the new Dina Lawson exhibition on view at the High Museum. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. 
That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Dina Lawson has referred to her work as a mirror of everyday life. Ms. Lawson's photos examine and challenge historical representations of black people and black life. Dina Lawson is a new exhibition at the High Museum, co-organized by the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston and MoMA PS1. The show is on view through February 19th. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke via Zoom with Maria Kelly, assistant curator of photography at the High. Here, Kelly talks about how the artist's upbringing influenced her work. Dina has this deep lineage and heritage, actually, in photography. Her grandmother worked for Eastman Kodak, who was the founder of the Kodak Photography Company, which, you know, I think maybe more familiar in the past, but was the photography company that helped sort of popularize photography for the everyday person. She was born and raised in Rochester, New York. I should back up and say that. And then her mother also worked for Kodak for decades. Meanwhile, her father uh, worked for the Xerox processing company and was also a really avid snap shooter of Dina and her twin sister, Dana, the entire time they were growing up. So she has this really deep foundation already in the process of photography and new developments in photography. And it kind of just seems like a, a logical evolution that she would have become the photographer that she is today. Yeah, absolutely. And a little backstory in the history is that historically photography has been wielded as a tool of suppressing Black representation, maybe even objectifying it or fetishizing non-white subjects. How does Dina rewrite that narrative in her photographs? Yes, absolutely. Um, And I think there's something interesting with what you just said uh, that maybe isn't so commonly known in the history of photography. So when Kodak was becoming so popular um, among the everyday person, there was a card that they mailed to different processing companies um, and it was called the Shirley card. And it was a white woman and it had kind of the color tones that the processors had to match to make sure that they were getting the right color contrast with their prints. But I mean, what's I think insane to us to consider today, you know, it's if you're only counting for white skin, you're like leaving out an entire chunk of the population and making photography less accessible, actually. So I think there's something there again, linking back to that sort of Kodak history there. Dina is creating these really beautiful, highly staged, large format color photographs that are depicting individuals, couples, and groups in both domestic and public settings. Um, And she's constructing these narratives of family, love, intimacy, and desire. 
But um, rather than creating documentary or biographical pictures, she's making images that tell stories. She calls each image actually a portal uh, to reclaim and make visible of Black experiences. So her works are very large scale. When you come into the museum, you'll see that, you know, some of them are even four feet across. It renders the figures who are shown in the images as almost nearly life-size. Um, so it's a really immediate exchange between both the viewer and the subject um, in looking at one another. Uh, and I think that's what actually is really uh, one of the most significant pieces about her work is there's really no passive looking in viewing these works, it really does feel like the viewer is being met by the person who is being viewed in these pieces. It's like you're in the living room with them, with it being such a large scale. Yes, absolutely. So she's using these really domestic, uh, you know, kind of middle-class homes as a lot of her interiors. And you'll see really familiar items to, you know, many of us, you'll see a lot of family photos on tables, um, which really emphasizes this importance of family and history. Um, and also then harkens back again to her background. Um, and you'll see, you know, just things a little out of, you know, array, not so organized. And I think it's great to remember that um, Dina's working with a really large format camera. So the whole process of her photographing is a very slow one. It's very deliberate. You know, her sessions of photographing may last 30 to 40 minutes. And so even though the scene might look like she just happened upon it and just kind of snapped it really fast. It's so perfectly composed exactly as she wants you to see it. No part is not supposed to be seen in that photograph. So that's really important to remember while looking at these images. Yeah, and I was thinking uh, while you're talking about the image in particular of the family, the mother and her two sons sitting poised like next to the Christmas tree and she purposely showed the wide part of the wall where at the very top of the wall, the trim, it still looks like unfinished paint, you know, whereas maybe it, another photographer would crop in, you know, to, oh, see this perfect family. But when you zoom out, it's like, no, not, some things aren't finished quite as they should be. Yes, exactly. And I think that image, it's wonderful because the mother and the two children, it, they look so formal. It looks like, you know, that holiday occasion that you would have dressed up for and you would be together for and happy for. Um, but then, yeah, her kind of expanding that scene outward, you know, it's so intentional. And I feel like with that little area at the very top where the blue paint didn't reach, um, you can almost feel that action. Like we've all painted a wall and been like, oh, that one area is just like a little too far out of reach. And I think it's so familiar of a gesture. Um, that room is also, I think, Great because, you know, on the right side, there's stacks of DVDs. On the left side, there's a pile of binders. And again, I feel like that's also so, you know, relatable in a way of, you know, we all kind of have all of this clutter of everyday, you know, stuff and loveliness around us. Um, and she's really just creating this entire tableau to show normal life, but in this beautiful way. Mm -hmm. And in that same vein of showing normal life, she uses everyday people instead of models. Yes, and, and not even friends or family. She encounters most of her subjects on the street. Um, there's a really great quote that she has shared, which I'll read to you. 
She says, quote, my studio is the world. My studio is working up enough courage to get out of the house and go somewhere and try to find subjects and see what happens. It's intimidating. It's at times nerve wracking. It's uncomfortable, but it's also refreshing and invigorating. Every time I approach a new subject, I'm meeting them for the first time. And it humbles me in a way. There's something about exchanging energy, the kinetic energy of this stranger. So I think that adds a whole nother level to looking at these pictures. Again, you see them and your first inclination is, okay, this is a person in their own living room in their own space, dressed as they normally would be. But she is so highly crafted this entire scene that it is probably a stranger she met not too long ago. It may not be their living room. It may not be their space. It might be, you don't know. They might be photographed alongside a person they don't even know. So there's all of this sort of ambiguity and curiousness behind it. And Dina is very purposeful in not revealing those details to you. So you don't know exactly the relationships in real life of who's being portrayed. You're just seeing what is in front of you and accepting that as the story that she is crafting. Mm. How does she prompt these subjects to seem so comfortable in front of the camera, even though that might not be their living room? And I've even read in some instances with photographs of mothers with babies or fathers with babies, it's not even their babies that they're posing with. How how does she prompt them to seem so comfortable in an intimate setting? You know, that's a great question. It's something that honestly, just personally, I wish I could sit in on and watch um, because it seems fascinating to me. I do think that And this is just, you know, hypothesizing here, but I do think that if your entire studio practice is actually meeting people out in the world like she does, you must have some sort of, you know, uh, way of connecting with people that puts them at ease and makes them interested in what you're doing. You know, I I don't know that most of us would be like, oh, hello, nice to meet you. Sure, I'll go with you and be photographed here, you know? But obviously (laughs) she is developing such a rapport with the people that she's meeting that they're, you know, they fully understand the images that they're in. They fully understand the way she is, you know, posing them and and she's also, you know, at times dictating their dress. Um, So I think it, even though it's so specifically her vision, um, it does seem like a collaboration. And I think also if, you know, you're photographing for 30 to 40 minutes, you become really comfortable with one another during that time. You know, there's a lot of space and a lot of time to observe each other, to, you know, have exchanges. Um, So I think she just, you know, must have a really marvelous way of putting people at ease and actually making them excited to participate um, and, you know, be shown in these photographs. Yeah, it seems like she is really good at balancing, making it seem candid, but also staging her subjects in a perfect way for that scene. Absolutely. And that that's always kind of the trick. I think as you go through the show, your mind kind of wants to just assume what you're seeing is real. I think we have this kind of pesky opinion that, you know, photography is a truthful medium. What we're seeing is always going to be factual. It's going to be truthful, even though we've seen time and time again, that that is not the case at all. But, you know, we have this inclination to believe like, okay, I understand what I'm seeing and I understand the facts behind it. So Dina's really challenging what we understand photography to be as a medium. You know, she's playing with the scene and she's playing with uh, us as the viewer by creating these scenes too. Yeah, absolutely. One of the more poignant photographs on display in the exhibit is titled Nation. It's of two African-American men sitting on a couch, shirtless in a living room. One has his hand raised, outstretched to the camera, kind of pointing his finger like in a gun type way. And the other man has his 
has this like mouthpiece contraption stretching out his mouth to show no teeth. His eyes kind of look like they're maybe rolled back in his head. They're just slightly opened. And in the right-hand corner of the photograph, collaged on top of that is of what seems to be George Washington's dentures. And it was said that George Washington's teeth, allegedly, had included teeth of enslaved people. What inspired Dina to photograph this and juxtapose the two pictures? Yes, this is one of the most interesting uh, works, I think, in the exhibition. You've very accurately described it. And it's actually a combination of things that led her to this piece. This is one of the pieces she's actually expanded on. So we do know some background on it, which is a little unusual considering that she is, you know, withholding a lot of the details usually. But she had actually had a dream um, where she dreamed of a man wearing that gold mouthpiece that he's wearing in that picture. And so often with her works, she actually either envisions it or, you know, comes up with an idea or maybe dreams it. And then she sketches out the idea for how the final image will look like. And then she just kind of holds on to that sketch and that idea until she meets people who fit the bill for what she's imagining. So she may have been holding on to that for, you know, six months or a year before finally meeting the people who she kind of sees being the right fit as the subjects for that uh, image. So she met these two men who are actually hip hop artists and she started working with them in this photograph and she had found online this dental, uh, you know, apparatus. I don't even know exactly what the name of it would be. And she spray painted it gold in order to match all of the jewelry that the men are wearing. So it makes it also look like both an item of adornment, but also an item of torture. And so he's wearing that in the image. And again, I think we get a sense of actually her collaborating with her subjects because she had that as something she wanted used in that image. But then, you know, she asked like which one of them would like to wear that. She's not really dictating that. She's seeing what they're comfortable with. So there is that exchange there. And then meanwhile, so she has this idea or this dream of this scene. And then she is watching a documentary and learns about George Washington's dentures and the fact that the teeth may have been sourced from enslaved people. And she's really fascinated and horrified by this. And she has a picture of it printed out on her studio wall. And so I think everything kind of actually came together all at once. Um, I don't know that, you know, one really was leading to the other, um, but she, you know, had this work come together. She's talking about how she was uh, photographing that scene for, you know, 30 to 40 minutes and everybody's kind of getting tired after that. And so, you know, she's trying to corral them and uh, the man who's making, you know, the gun uh, shooting motion toward the camera you know, he had done it right at the, like the last image that she shot and it was perfect. And then you see the man with the mouthpiece. He's just obviously looking exhausted at that point, which is kind of why his eyes are looking a little squinted too. And so it all came together in this sort of perfect moment after a really long session. And then she slides in that picture of George Washington. And so I think, you know, it's both the man's kind of taking a shot at history, taking a shot at us. She's also shooting the scene. There's a lot of ideas with the, you know, idea of shooting in this image. Um, and yeah, just sort of looking at, at history and where, where we've come from. Wow. Yeah, no, I, after reading this, I definitely went down a rabbit hole <laughs> looking at <laughs> about the history of George Washington's dentures. I had yeah. no idea. Yeah, it's really interesting, especially because we all just know the story of the wooden teeth. You know, right. Like, oh, okay. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. No, yeah. definitely. 
How does Dina Lawson create new ways of seeing and representing Black life in her photographs? I think it's the way she's both staging the people. They are such intimate scenes. They're so disarming. They're, you know, real scenes of care and affection. She's also photographing across the African and African-American diasporas. Um, She's building this, uh, what she calls an ever-expanding mythological extended family. you know, across continents and the country. So she's photographing everywhere from Brooklyn to Atlanta, from Haiti to Ethiopia, from Brazil to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And so kind of creating this mythological family and, you know, lineages that are crossing times and oceans. Uh, she's also never including the title or in the title, she's not including the location where she photographed the people. So you never really know like, oh, okay, this is in Brooklyn or, oh, okay, this is in Brazil it's always just anonymous. So you kind of just get this sense of everybody being, you know, this family, um, regardless of location, she's not looking to sort of segment anybody in that way. She's trying to unify in that way. You know, emphasizing this sort of connection across time and across space and creating this larger family narrative. Maria Kelly, assistant curator of photography at the High Museum, Speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans, the Dina Lawson exhibition is on view through February 19th. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, Irish tenor Emmett Cahill returns to Atlanta for the second annual Joy to the World concert, and we'll listen back to our conversation from last year. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Holiday sounds are in the air this Friday at Symphony Hall as the World Outreach Fund presents Joy to the World, featuring Emmett Cahill, the internationally renowned Irish singer. When Cahill joined me last year via Zoom, he discussed why he thinks the Irish tenor sound is so appealing. I guess a lot of it comes down to these songs, these stories that the Irish, the Irish were always known as storytellers. And needless to say, the Irish traveled the world over. Um, I mean, I've been around the States many times over the years touring and and I bump into Irish people all the time. And I guess we tell our stories and we sing our songs and the the themes of the music is, it's very universal. It's very accessible to all cultures, to all people. You know, we sing of great triumphs and loss and love and tragedy and emigration in particular, I guess, is a theme that everybody particularly here in the states can resonate with um your ancestors ultimately came from some far-reaching country and, and went through a great journey to get to the united states and make their roots and and find a better life and i guess the irish story is very much epitomized in the emigration story so 
over the years, we have had some great classical tenors who have taken on these songs and, and the style of the tenor just seems to, I suppose, bring out that story in a way that other styles don't. Let's take two of the best-loved examples of Irish music, and if you would please, hear your answers to what makes it great. First, Danny Boy, of course. What makes it great? I think Danny Boy is a song that is hugely relatable. I mean, the origins of the song are a conversation between a father and a son. And the son is about to leave home and go to war to fight for his country. And he speaks to his father in the first verse, trying, I suppose, to comfort him, you know, and telling him that he may not come back, but he will always be with him. the father explains to him that if he does come back he may very well have passed on so there is a great honesty in the conversation it has a beautiful melody of course but again it, there's it's something so relatable to so many people whether it's in that particular scenario which many families have gone through but also there's something that seems to connect people that it whether it's a parent to a child or a spouse or a, a family member. When I sing Danny Boy, I have seen people smile and I have seen people cry. And it's one of those rare moments that, you know, not every song does that. Normally you sing a song and it has one effect on people and you kind of expect it. Whereas Danny Boy, you, you never know how it is going to affect people because I think with Dan, Danny Boy and also the Irish songs, these, these songs, I think, serve as a conduit for people, for their, for their memories. They connect people to their loved ones, to moments in their life, to people maybe who have passed on. And the songs maybe bring them to that moment in their life or make them sense that that person is there with them. And, and I speak about this in my concerts, and it's a very powerful thing. And, and as I said, the music is simply the conduit, but... For the audience member, it's their own personal experience. And I think that's really what's special about it. And in particular, I see that manifest itself when I sing Danny Boy. It's always a very moving uh, moment in the concert. Oh, yes. And my all-time favourite Irish melody, which leaves me sobbing, but maybe also grateful, so I smile for the beauty it brings. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, it does both. Tura Lura Lura, my all-time favourite. What makes it so great? 
I think Tour Allura, it's funny. I, I sang it at a concert recently in uh, Pensacola, Florida. I was down at Pensacola Christian University and there were 6,000 people at the concert and they were all aged between 19 and 23. And I had the entire auditorium singing along with Tour Allura, <laughs> which was for me so kind of, almost unexpected because I had heard my grandmother singing it to me when I was a child. I woke upon a Sunday morning, tired eyes to greet the day, a rucksack full of expectations up on dreary Langdon Way, a train awaiting on the platform, the diesel humming high, a one-way ticket stamp for freedom, time for just one last goodbye. I bring the song with me wherever I go because for that reason you just mentioned Lois it's a piece that just resonates with people here and I think the special thing about Tour Lura is that it's a song that is passed from one generation to the next and that's the quite unique thing about Irish music is that it's not just of its time it's there's a sense of passing it on to your own children because you know how it made you feel and you know this continues on through generations and that's very much the case in ireland and as from my time here in the states from touring i've seen that i've had people come up to me and say you know you sang tour allure tonight and you took me back to my mother singing it to me as a child and and there are very few songs i think actually do that for people and these were people you know late in their life they're talking about maybe 50 60 years ago and a song just took them there so when i was singing that with <laughs> six thousand kids in their 20s it was quite a a unique experience but it was really special and they all they were absolutely loving it so you have good taste lois i tell you <laughs> the kids in pensacola would agree with you well, thank you. Who can resist an Irish lullaby? Absolutely. You know you have arrived when you are invited to open the St. Patrick's Day Parade in New York City. Emmett, would you tell us about that experience? What was it like for you? Well, first off, I can tell you that it was absolutely freezing. <laughs> because <laughs> it was a few years ago, and I remember... I, we were out doing some promotion work. I was launching my album, um, my Ireland album, and we had done the Today Show that morning. And we were going up to the parade up on Fifth Avenue. It starts up just outside, just beside Central Park on the, on the east side of the park. And I remember all the streets were shut down and my mom and dad were with me. We were trying to get through to the NBC truck to get in and get prepped and get mic'd up. And for some reason, every time we tried to get towards the park, we were even turned around by police officers. And just to add a little bit of spice to this story, there was about two feet of snow in New York that day. <laughs> so we were running around trying to get through, calling the producer. To, anyway, eventually we made it with about five minutes to spare. And I just ran into the truck and did whatever I could to warm my body up because I was going on a, on national TV and literally within a couple of minutes, I had a mic in my hand and I had to stand there and smile and pretend this was the, <laughs> the greatest moment of my life. And it was, it was, it was a big moment, but I, all I could think was how am I ever going to feel warm again? So oh. 
it was but you know it was a wonderful experience and to have my parents there well here in atlanta the theme of the program on which you'll sing is joy to the world which songs do you especially look forward to performing on the christmas concert well for joy to the world what we want to do is i suppose bring out some of those Irish songs that I've mentioned, these songs that no matter what time of year it is, no matter what the audience is, they resonate. So needless to say, I won't be let out of the symphony hall intact if I don't sing Danny Boy, if I don't sing Tura Laura. Um, there's a song called Isle of Hope, Isle of Tears, which tells the immigration story so beautifully. On the first day of January, 1892 They opened Ellis Island And they let the people through And first you cross the threshold Of that Isle of Hope and Tears Was more from Ireland Who was all of 15 years Isle of hope Isle of tears Isle of freedom Isle of fears Uh, We have a wonderful quartet from the Atlanta Symphony with us. We have uh, the Georgia State University Choir will be joining us and of course we have Amy Little. So the first half of the concert will be very much Irish themed and songs of inspiration, which in many ways sum up the work that World Outreach Fund do, the impact they have on people's lives. And then the second half, we are going full Christmas, where all the Christmas hymns that people know, we're going to have sing-along songs. And of course, we'll have Silent Night or Holy Night, Joy to the World. So we're definitely going to be getting in, in the festive mood. It's the start of the the holiday season and I think people are people are ready to after the year that we've all had people are ready to relax and celebrate and be together again so it's going to be a lovely night. Emmett Cahill this has been a lovely experience talking with you thank you so very much. Well thank you so much for having me Lois and and I look forward to seeing everybody in Atlanta we're ready to uh, kick off the holiday season in style and happy holidays to everybody out there. Irish tenor Emmett Cahill. The Joy to the World concert is this Friday, December 2nd at Atlanta Symphony Hall. More information is on their website, aso.org. The 42nd Annual Holiday Concert of the Atlanta Gay Men's Chorus is this Friday and Saturday. This year, the chorus is accompanied by a chamber orchestra and organist at the Cathedral of St. Philip. Artistic Director Don Milton tells us more about the program. This year, our concert includes a mini-musical about an aluminum Christmas tree, a hilarious historical romp through the 12 days of Christmas, and holiday favorites like uh, Silver Bells and Linus and Lucy. One of the most moving pieces on our program is called Not in Our Town. It tells a powerful and true story of a Jewish family in Billings, Montana, 
when they put up a menorah in their front window, they started getting calls in the middle of the night from the Ku Klux Klan, and a cinder block was thrown through their front window. The police suggested they take down their menorah and Star of David, but instead, the town rallied around this family with thousands of people putting paper menorahs in their windows. In a time of increased racism, homophobia, and anti-Semitism, this song and its story about community is particularly inspiring. We're also singing an arrangement of Sarah Bareilles' Love is Christmas, which states, Love is who we are. Love is what we do. I hope everyone will come out to laugh and smile and cry some happy tears to kick off their holiday season with the Atlanta Gay Men's Chorus. Their concert takes place December 2nd and 3rd at the Cathedral of St. Philip. More information is available on their website, agmchorus.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about reckonings and reconstructions on view at the Georgia Museum of Art. Plus, we explore contemporary Haitian transmigration with the new exhibition at Hammond's House Museum in hope for a better future. If you've missed part of today's show, like our earlier story about an invasion Christmas carol at Dad's Garage, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find a complete archive of our stories, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.